This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, December 9th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. For the benefit of American workers, it may not be enough to prioritize policies that boost wages or worker flexibility, but also addressing the costs of basic goods for whom lower income workers must spend the largest shares of their budgets. Gabriella Bulma-Smith authored a chapter in Cato's Empowering the New American Worker book. We spoke last week. The government tries to alleviate poverty by trying to directly increase people's incomes. And they try to do this using things like subsidies and transfers and minimum wage laws. But these measures aren't that effective and they're definitely not sustainable. Instead, our colleague Ryan Bourne proposed a cost-based approach to reforming existing government interventions. And I use this approach in my chapter of the Empowering the American Worker book to look at specific programs that make Americans' lives more expensive. So by reforming these programs, we would make people's lives cheaper and therefore they would have more money to use to spend on their lives. So to reiterate here, uh, we're, ta- we're not talking about raising incomes. We're not talking about trying to get in- increased benefits or things like that. We're talking about making the cost of living lower so that the same salary can carry you further. Exactly. And it's about providing Americans with more autonomy over their money and giving them the choice of how they want to spend their disposable income. Because at the end of the day, all American workers are consumers and all American consumers spend a significant portion of their paychecks on essential goods like food, clothing and energy. And these necessities constitute the largest portion of lower income households spending. In fact, based on 2019 data, which we use because the pandemic has skewed everything, um, shelter, food, transport, utilities, and transport accounted for approximately 68% of the poorest U.S. households' annual expenditures, compared to 52% for the richest households. So we want to really make these reforms so that poorer people see the greatest difference. All right. So for uh, basic goods, you sort of rattled off a list of of what those entail. But where's the low hanging fruit in terms of uh, attempting to reduce those the costs of those items? So I think that the low hanging fruit would be some of the trade policies that affect these products. Uh, many trade policies impact food, for example. The poorest spend 14.3% of their paychecks on food, and the U.S. government artificially raises the price of milk, cheese, and other dairy products by literally setting the price of those products, but also imposes tariffs and tariff rate quotas and other trade barriers to prevent imports of those products. So it would be very easy for the government to simply stop setting those prices because the problem with price setting and preventing imports from coming into the country is that you insulate dairy farmers from competition, which means that they're also not going to provide Americans with the dairy products that they want because American farmers are going to produce the dairy products that they can get the highest prices for. 
So that would be a really good place to start. And I think a great example of a dairy product that we've seen a significant issue with recently is infant formula. There has been high tariffs on infant formula um, for many years that have prevented the U.S. from importing infant formula. In fact, American producers uh, service 98% of American consumption of infant formula. And so when the Abbott plant in Sturgis, Michigan had to go offline, that created a significant supply shock and American parents couldn't find infant formula. But because of prohibitive tariffs and other trade barriers, we also couldn't import infant formula and parents were going to stores and seeing empty shelves. The infant formula crunch has been well documented. It has been ongoing. It has uh, abated somewhat. The the interesting about the infant formula crisis is that stock levels have increased to around 87%. But if you actually walk into a store, and this is anecdotally evidenced by many Americans, there's still no formula on the shelves. So there's still a significant uh, disruption between, I don't know, the warehouses and the retailers that you can't actually walk into a store and buy infant formula. You can get it online, but that doesn't necessarily work for everybody. Um, For example, those who are on... WIC benefits can only use their benefits in store. But if they can't get formula in a store, then they have to go online and use their money out of pocket. Um, One of the reforms to this would be essentially to allow WIC beneficiaries to just have a cash voucher so that they could purchase any formula. Um, And there is there is some temporary allowance of this going on at the moment in response to the crisis. WIC recipients can walk into stores and buy any formula available, but it still doesn't apply online. Some states are enrolled in pilot programs so that uh, these WIC recipients can buy online, um, but it's not that many states. So there are many WIC recipients uh, that cannot simply buy their infant formula online and are having to use their out-of-pocket money to buy formula. Now, uh, more broadly, you know, there are other food items that we could talk about as much as much as construction materials or any number of other basic goods that people uh, consume. Um, but the, you know, the, what I think packs such a powerful punch for what you're saying is that uh, none of this involves like some sort of new government program. Uh, reducing the costs, the expenses for uh, average families to uh, have access to these goods at reasonable prices is almost entirely regulatory. Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, It's at the federal level. Um, The sugar program, I think, is a great example of this. The federal government cartelizes the domestic sugar uh, market. Uh, Basically, what USDA does, the Department of Agriculture, is they give loans to sugar processors using collateral literally in the form of raw sugar or refined sugar beet. And they then create a price floor, a minimum price, um, to to make sure that these sugar processors get some, you know, living standard price. Um, But that is literally making sugar more expensive. Um, 
And what's worse is to make sure that these sugar processors repay the loans, the government restricts the supply of domestic sugar and also restricts the supply of sugar by preventing imports. Um, and if you look at the price data of U.S. sugar versus the world price, it's quite stark. Uh, the U.S. sugar price in 2021 was 33.55 cents per pound, whereas the world price was 17.85 cents per pound. Now, this is really a problem for American sugar-consuming industries like bakers and candy makers or, you know, even think about Coca-Cola. Um, people are obsessed with Mexican Coke and they import Mexican Coke because it's made with sugar and not high fructose corn syrup. And why is American Coke made with high fructose corn syrup? Because U.S. sugar is so expensive. Outside of the categories of food, obviously, there are a lot of uh, tariffs and other um, regulatory entanglements that raise the prices of a lot of goods. But outside of that, what where, where are we likely to see enormous benefits for average working people um, of the government getting out of the way? Clothing and footwear would be a really great place to start. Uh, policies were set to protect the clothing and footwear industries in the U.S. in you know in the Depression era. Uh, since then, those industries have essentially died in the U.S. But we still have these policies that are artificially making these products more expensive. So if we look at uh, shoes, for example. Children's shoes are subject to a 48% tariff uh, compared to a men's leather dress shoe, which is subject to an 8.5% tariff. This is a pretty uh, normal trend in the tariff schedule, actually, that luxury products are subject to lower tariffs than sort of mass market goods. And obviously, this affects the poorest the most. And when it comes to children's products, of course, children grow and change frequently. And so parents are having to buy new clothes and shoes for their kids all the time. So if you have a 48% tariff on their shoes, that's making it extremely more expensive than otherwise. And the US imports I think 99% of shoes. So people essentially have to pay these tariffs. There, there, is no, there isn't really any alternative. And for single parent homes, especially, it would be worthwhile to remove these tariffs, given that their intention to protect an industry is obsolete. We're into winter now. I think it was 35 degrees when I came into work this morning. And government policies make utilities more expensive, like heating. Um, and the one of the ways that the government does this is by imposing anti-dumping and countervailing duties, which are considered trade remedies to correct unfair, alleged unfair trade practices on imports. And they do so on numerous energy-related products like solar panels, wind turbines, electrical transformers, which are used in pipes, um, oil and gas pipes. And that increases the cost of making these products in the U.S. and of distributing energy in the U.S. because 
as producers are subject to these higher costs, and given that these are necessities, they likely pass down that cost to consumers, making it more expensive. State energy codes also affect home values. Um, This is the worst for low-income households. It's been found that regulating a home's carbon footprint uh, has decreased home values by 8 to 12 percent because what happens is that the regulations end up reducing the number of bedrooms and square footage of homes in these lower income households. And this loss of wealth has not been offset by reduced energy use and therefore not reduced energy bills. Gabriella Beaumont-Smith is author of the chapter on basic goods for the Cato Institute's Empowering the New American Worker book. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 